0: Please be aware that, due to the nature of this episode's topic, some adult themes are discussed. You're listening to Exploring Boys Education, a podcast produced by the International Boys Schools Coalition. I am Bruce Collins. Our guest today, Peggy Orenstein, is the author of the New York Times bestsellers, Girls and Sex, Cinderella Ate My Daughter, and Waiting for Daisy, as well as Don't Call Me Princess, Flux, and the classic Schoolgirls. Her latest New York Times bestseller is Boys and Sex, Young Men on Hookups, Love, Porn, Consent, and Navigating the New Masculinity. Before we dive into this important conversation with Peggy, however, it's always a pleasure to have my colleague and IBSC COO Amy Ahart on the podcast to share more about the IBSC's offerings on the IBSC Newsreel.
1: Hello listeners, I'm pleased to be able to share our current opportunities focused on educating boys. IBSC Ideas Lab is a new format of programming that we launched in 2020 and is designed as an interactive exchange among colleagues, engaging dedicated educators who learn and grow together. IBSC Ideas Lab invites participants to connect virtually using the free online tool Zoom for three one-hour sessions to discuss topics focused on boys and boys' schools. Our two new IBSC Ideas Lab programs are for school librarians in boys' schools and about boys and sport. More details can be found on the Ideas Lab page on the IBSC website. With conversations in boys' schools globally focusing on responsible sexual citizenship, we invite interested members to sign up for our new online class, Responsible Sexual Citizenship in Today's World, The Challenges Facing Boys. Explore this important topic with a cohort of colleagues from around the globe starting on April 12th. Also starting on April 12th is Mastery Practice in Teaching Boys. This online class is for experienced teachers who would like to continue their professional growth on the journey to becoming a master teacher in boys' schools. As always, more information can be found on the IBSC website. We hope you'll take advantage of some of these terrific resources.
0: Thank you, Amy. I would echo your sentiments and encourage people to visit our website to check out all the professional development opportunities that exist for educators, administrators and other staff in boys' schools. Laurie Gottlieb, a psychotherapist and New York Times bestselling author of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, asserts that she can't think of a more important book for our times. She calls Boys and Sex eye-opening and nuanced, a compassionate exploration of boys' sexual lives, which gives voice to their deepest struggles and should be mandatory reading for anyone who cares about the next generation. Many of you have also shared with me that Boys and Sex was an eye-opening and worthwhile read, and as a result, I'm excited to be able to share with you my conversation with Peggy Orenstein, the author. It's a real privilege to be speaking with Peggy Orenstein about her book, Boys and Sex. And I know many in our coalition have read your book, Peggy, and they're going to relish in the opportunity they have to listen to you in this episode. So I really want to thank you for joining me on Exploring Boys Education.
2: Um, I'm really happy to be here. I really am.
0: So I thought we'd kick off with a question that I often kick off with when I speak to authors, and that is the question of why. (laughs) <laughs> um, I've read that you have spent many years chronicling the lives of adolescents and teen girls. Uh-huh. And, uh, what I read, um, you sort of expressed this idea that you'd never expect to focus on boys, but here we have boys and sex. Yeah. And, um, so, yeah, you know, I really want to know what led you to interviewing more than 100 boys and writing this book.
2: Well, you know, you're right. I, it was not on my to-do list to write about boys. I have been an ex, you know, known as an expert on girls and have been writing about girls for a quarter of a century. But, you know, I wrote girls and sex and I went around the country after that book and every place that I went, um, parents, girls, boys themselves kept saying, what about the boys? What about the boys? And, and saying, well, you know, I think that's somebody else's work, not mine. And, um, you know, and part of it was because I, I, I felt that girls' lives were the ones that were really changed um, basically by the earthquake of feminism. And while boys' lives had changed, they, they hadn't changed as much. So I wasn't sure what there would be to say. Um, and also, boys don't so much have a reputation for chattiness. And I was a little concerned that I would have transcripts that um, were basically. Uh-huh.
0: One word one word answers. Right.
2: I know. <laughs> um, and you know, I look at like their moms and I'm a woman. All these different reasons I had for talking myself out of it. But the more I kind of started looking into it and the more I thought about it, I realized that nobody was talking to boys and nobody was listening to them. And so I started doing some early interviews, and right around the time when I started doing that, um, the Me Too allegations started. And it felt like suddenly everybody was talking about sexual misconduct across every sector of society, by men, by boys. We were saying masculinity was broken and toxic, and I can tell you later why I don't like to use that word. Um, and the the and it, you know, there was this imperative to reduce sexual violence, but there was also, I thought, now a positive opportunity to engage with young men in conversation about sex, intimacy. Gender dynamics, because if we, you know, we have to know what's in their heads so that we can guide them towards better, more informed, safe, legal, ethical, you know, joyful choices.
0: I'm interested just to pick up on something that you said there, you know, you were saying you, you expected that boys would give you one word answers when you were interviewing the boys. I'm, I'm really interested to know, you know, were they forthcoming? Was it easy to speak to them?
2: They were, you know, it was, I, I was really surprised. I think it was one of the biggest surprises to me was that they were um, in some ways they were more forthcoming than girls and it really took me aback. But I think, you know, I think it really reflected the past, the the fact that we so rarely give permission to boys to explore their interior lives, and when they were really offered it, and when there was, I mean, I think the other piece of it was that for, when I talk to kids, there's sort of a contract, right? Because I'm a journalist, I mean, not a real contract, yeah. but you know, an implicit com- contract because I'm a journalist that they are there to talk to me, um, and so, yeah, they were they they were incredible, and they were really insightful about their own experience, too,
0: which surprised me. Peggy, I'd like to dive a little bit into masculinity because it's, I I think, one of the sort of core things you deal with in your book. Um, Uh When you were talking with boys, you know, in in your experience, what are some of the ways traditional notions of masculinity, and I think this is a thing that men everywhere are wrestling with, but how are these traditional notions of masculinity limiting boys from fully expressing who they are?
2: One thing that was really uh, amazing to me was that, of course they you know things had changed for them right I mean they, they were more um, they, they saw girls comp- very differently probably than than previous generations as, as being entitled to leadership or entitled to their place in the classrooms or you know their place in the playing field. but they also still held on to these um, really conventional ideas, and when I would ask them to describe the ideal guy. It was like they were in 1955, all of a sudden, they'd be like, you know, aggressive, you know, aggression, dominance, um, sexist status seeking, um, all these different things. And um, when I would talk to boys, um, they would routinely say that they felt denied the full spectrum of human expression, whether it was by their male peers or girlfriends or media or coaches. Or parents, you know, 60% of boys said in a national survey in the U.S. that parents were the main source of restrictive gender messages. And while, you know, there were a few guys who would say things like, my dad told me, you know, don't be a little bitch or man up. But most of them said that their dad, that, you know, one guy said to me, you know, my dad was not, uh, I didn't learn, you know, he, he wasn't homophobic, he wasn't sexist. I do not learn that toxic masculinity from him, but I did learn the emotionally stunted side of masculinity because he never showed emotion. He was more of a sigh and walk away kind of guy uh, than somebody who would talk to you about how you were feeling or what was going on. And he said, I learned how to not have conversations from him. And, you know, the implication, I mean, there's some rewards. We have to acknowledge there are rewards for following the conventional masculine script, but we also know that guys who adhere to those norms are not only more likely to harass and bully, um, but more likely themselves to be victims of verbal or physical abuse, more prone to binge drinking, risky sexual behavior, getting in car accidents. They're less happy than other men and and boys. Uh, They have higher depression rates, fewer friends. So there's real consequences, real negative consequences to hanging on to those masculine norms.
0: I want to pick up on this idea that you shared where, you know, when you asked boys to describe the ideal man to you, it was like they hearkened back to these outdated versions of masculinity. Yeah. And you also mentioned that many boys these days seem to hold egalitarian views about girls, but there seems to be a real tension there between. What they say they believe, and then also feeling forced or boxed into mm-hmm. this traditional masculine trope. Yeah, how do we unpack that and understand that tension for boys? It must be must be confusing for them. I
2: think so. and you know and the word box is really crucial because a lot of people call it being in the man box. um and I've sat in classrooms where people um with boys will have them, you know, make a box on the on the, whiteboard and put all the words inside um, that are the box words and the words that describe themselves as um, individuals or human beings that don't fit in that box and, and look at that and talk about that in a class. I mean, that can be a really illuminating exercise um, for boys. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, as, as a writer, that's been kind of my, um, real interest is looking at the ways and, and with girls too, that we, uh, we have these new expectations, but we, we kind of layer them over the old ones without examining or discarding the old ones. So it does create for, for both boys and girls um, in their own particular ways, a really profound tension that, you know, maybe they can navigate, but that can have some really um, uh, troubling repercussions for them.
0: It seems to me obvious that these problematic expressions of masculinity have to impact boys' ideas of sex and intimacy then.
2: Oh, for sure. And you know, and even before you go right to the to, to that part of it, um, you know, when I talk about girls and sex and boys and sex side by side, I and I have to do like my, you know, my TV soundbite thing. Um, I'll say, because uh, I do, right? Um, girls and sex um, is really about the ways that girls are systematically disconnected from their bodies. And boys and sex, I mean, even more in a way than being about sex, was about how boys were disconnected from their hearts. And it's really so much about um, vulnerability and the ways that boys are um, you know, wrestling with it uh, with the relationship to it with you know the taboo against it with the rejection or the denial or the capitulation or the embracing of it, and it's really important because emotional vulnerability is you know it's fundamental to our humanity, and beyond that, Brene Brown calls vulnerability the secret sauce that holds our relationships together, and so when we cut boys off from that from their vulnerability, we really reduce. Or deny their capacity to have the kinds of relationships that we want them to be able to have as adults, and that you know that is damaging to them, and it also can be damaging to their romantic partners. Mm.
0: You know, I was struck um, as I, as I was um, preparing for this interview. You know, in the. In in your book you ask the following questions how can we raise boys to be better men i think that's a question educators of boys around the world are asking you know you you ask how can we ensure that they see women and girls as full human beings you speak about reducing sexual violence creating accountability for boys. And I think many boys schools are having great conversations already about a new masculinity. But in your mind and in your opinion, what are some of these markers of a new masculinity that teachers of boys can encourage boys to pursue?
2: Well, you know, I think one thing is that I like that because it's thinking of something more positive. And I think that too often right now, when we're talking about boys and masculinity, we really skew negative. And so that's why I kind of alluded earlier to the idea that I don't like using the word, the phrase, toxic masculinity. Um, I think it was a great diagnostic tool. I think it is a great diagnostic tool, but it's so. But it it, it makes boys defensive, and it indicates that who they are in this kind of immutable way is toxic. And, and so what can we think of that is a generative masculinity that encourages boys to connect, that encourages them to hang on to emotional expression, that encourages them to, you know, one of the things that I found with boys that kind of broke my heart a little bit, um, was that on an individual level, they would always tell me that what they really wanted was like, you know, to be in love, to, to have a, a girlfriend, a dating partner, um, you know, or a boyfriend, if the case may be, um, that that they felt um, had their back, that they uh, loved, that cared for them, that they cared for. But they felt that that was unique to them. Every single one of them would say, "Well, I'm not like other guys, right? I w- I would really like to, you know, I'm I'm a relationship guy, but you're not allowed to be that." And so to see that kind of denial of their capacity to love, you know, how how do we help boys? hang on to that you know how do you know and and I think some of it is with with little boys um making sure we name their emotions um I you know I always feel like with with the with the youngest boys particularly but even older boys um to be able to say because they so often would say to me that um the only emotions they felt they were allowed were happiness and anger so um and they weren't wrong I mean there's a lot of research that shows that that really is the only emotions that boys are allowed so you know being able to say wow you know that that, that's fr- that seems like you're frustrated. It seems like uh, you're really sad about that. Um, that seems like, wow, that was a real betrayal by that person. Or, you know, boy, you know, just like expanding the repertoire and the vocabulary, um, particularly in the younger years, is uh, I think one of the biggest services that we can do for boys.
0: I've read uh, Susan David's uh, Emotional Agility, mm-hmm. and she speaks about... The more granular we become about naming our emotions and having language for what we're experiencing, the more emotionally resilient and agile we can we can become.
2: Absolutely, and you know the thing with with um, with boys is that what happens is that they become and and this, the research shows there's a word for this. Maybe you know it. I can never remember. It's like aryxith, ar, a rixis something like that. Um, but it's the inability to um, name feelings that you feel in your body. So you, can, you may feel this sort of feeling in your chest or, where, you know, wherever, but you can't give words or name to that. And um, that they, the research shows that 80% of adult men um, have some level of that disorder. So it's really a normalized thing. Um, and, and, and that makes it hard, it makes it challenging and also necessary for adult men to reckon with that and try their best. And they don't have to be perfect at it, but just to, you know, to try to model that and name that for boys.
0: You speak about Brene Brown calling vulnerability the secret source. And I think more and more we are learning that vulnerability is not a weakness, but in fact, a strength. And uh, I'm very curious, did you find that the boys you engaged with were open to vulnerability and being emotionally accessible?
2: No. (laughs) I mean, it depended on the circle. With me, they were. I mean, that was one of the things that was really interesting to me. You know, I would have boys say there was one boy that I was talking to over the course of um, you know a few years, and I hadn't talked to him for about a year. At one point, we got and I said, and somehow I don't remember what we were talking about, but I said, "So when's the last time you had a a conversation with somebody that felt, you know, emotionally connected to you?" And he sort of went "I I don't know. You know, I think it was the last time I talked to you. And that had been a year. It had been a solid year. Um, so, or, or they would say things to me like, um, "It took me a long time to recognize that when they told me that something had made them cry, that that was like a really big deal." Um, because as a woman, I was like, "All right, yeah, okay, made you cry, fine." <laughs> you know, but, but they were like telling it to me like, like they were. I, I felt almost like they were handing me something, you know, something really precious when they would tell me that. And certainly um, in their um, in, in their sex lives. Um, and, and I'm using sex in a really broad way here. I mean, it could mean kissing, it could mean groping, you know, and I'm not just saying penis, vagina intercourse, but the hookup culture in particular that, that boys were um, plunged into and expected to be part of and expected to embrace uh, is, uh, you know, absolutely repels vulnerability It's absolutely the very, very worst thing you can do. Um, and so I remember talking to, and you're supposed to, after you hook up with somebody, whatever that means to you, um, you're supposed to be less friendly afterwards, that's part of the script, than you were before so I remember talking to a group of boys who were uh sophomores in college and um they and one of them was saying that he had uh hooked up with a girl at after a party and they had had intercourse in fact and um the next day he saw her on campus uh and he averted his eyes and I said why did you do that because I know that that drives girls crazy they would talk to me about that all the time and he said well I don't know what she's thinking um You know, maybe she just thinks it's something that happens at a party and it would be just weird if I showed that, you know, vulnerability and said hello to her. And I said, so you are not willing to risk that tiny little bit of not even vulnerability, but politeness to say hello to somebody you had sex with last night on the street um, because you're so afraid that you would be seen as weak or, um, you know, in, uh, uh, um, I don't know, thirsty, whatever it is that he's, and he, he just sort of said, yeah, that's right. Even though he really wanted, he told me, he really wanted to find a girlfriend.
0: Would would I be right in thinking then that, um, you know, in your experience and in your interaction with these boys, that's, that hookup culture that you speak of is defining the way some boys view love and relationships.
2: Um, it is the pathway that they're being offered. And, and it used to be a college thing. Now it's very much a high school thing as well. Um, and just to be clear on what that is, a hookup, you know, could mean anything. Like I said, it might mean kissing. It might mean groping. It might mean oral sex. It might mean intercourse. You don't know what somebody says, is talking about when they say they hooked up with somebody, which is on purpose. It's purposely ambiguous and it allows young people to vastly overestimate what their peers are up to, um, which can lead to a lot of unwanted um, uh, sex, sex where you're pushing harder and for people who aren't ready for or interested in um, being more uh, sexually adventurous or, or exploratory or having these experiences to feel that like they have to. Um, so that's a hookup. It's, it's a, And also, you know, obviously casual sex is not a new thing. What is different is hookup culture. And what hookup culture tells young people is that, you um, physical intimacy should precede emotional intimacy rather than be its product. So that means that, um, uh, dating or a relationship is the, is the last thing on the agenda. And even though the, you know, so, so it's, and it's the normalized path to a relationship to hook up with somebody, even though most hookups won't lead to a relationship, partly because of what I said, that people are unfriendly afterwards. Um, and and because there's this sort of the idea that you're supposed to resist um, what I'm I'm such a word nerd because I'm a recovering English major, um, but they uh, the idea of catching feelings um, is is a phrase that at least American kids use, and what they mean is um, and and I always think like catching feelings, right? Like it's a disease. Like you don't want to catch chlamydia, you don't want to catch gonorrhea, you don't want to catch feelings. So you know to to, to not catch chlamydia or gonorrhea, you put on your physical condom to not catch feelings. You have to use an emotional condom. Alcohol. The hookup culture is not just um, lubricated by alcohol. It is dependent on it to create what um, Lisa Wade, who, who is a sociologist who writes about these things, she called it a compulsory carelessness that's necessary for a hookup. Um, it's what establishes the meaninglessness of an encounter and, and, and the task in hookup culture becomes finding somebody who is drunk enough to say yes, but not drunk enough to be unable to say yes. And, you know, who's going to make that judgment. So there are so many complications that come up in addition to just lousy sex, but just real um, concerns and vulnerability. I think, you know, we, we talk a lot about, girls, the impact of alcohol on girls and how drink for drink, you know, girls are going to get drunker faster than boys of the same height and weight because of the way female bodies metabolize alcohol um, and the risks of that. And, you know, how none of that justifies assault. We know that now, right? It's not the girl's fault. But we talk a lot less about the, uh, about the impact of alcohol on boys and the way that they're binge drinking, um, not only puts them at risk of a whole lot of other physical damage, but that it uh, makes it less makes them less able to perceive no or a partner's hesitation. It makes them more likely to push in ways that they wouldn't if they were sober, and it really puts them at risk of committing assault and of not realizing that or believing that they have. So alcohol is a real. You know, we really have to talk to boys about. The risks they take and the vulnerabilities they face and the consequences they may face when they binge
0: drink. I want to I want to speak to you about the impact of of internet porn on boys in a while, but it just seems it just seems good right now. You know, mm-hmm. leading on from what you said to to focus on consent for a bit. Um, and you know, what are some of your insights, Peggy, on on how boys view consent these days?
2: Um, well, you know, on one hand, of course, they have they have um, boys have learned uh, a new definition, um, but it's one thing to understand that theoretically, and it's another thing when they get in the room with somebody. Um, and so, they were all, you know, all the boys that I spoke with were aware of the ways that um, definitions of consent had changed, but. They and and a lot of them were trying to think about you know they, they, some of them were uncomfortable they would they would tell me you know they had done things and they weren't sure whether they had been consensual or they knew they weren't consensual but didn't know what to do about that and how to make amends for that or or be accountable for that um, and you know the there are some real gaps um, and, and 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 real ways that. Our lessons on consent, I think, can be undermined by um, the socialization that boys get around sex and, and particularly around media culture. And again, I know we're gonna talk about pornography in a minute, but that's one aspect, but it's certainly not the only one. Um, but it leads boys to um, see consent, for instance, consent to one act as consent to everything. So kissing on the dance floor as meaning consent to intercourse, or they're prone to believing the place where something happens constitutes consent. So um, there's a gap in research between the percentage of guys in college who believe that a girl asking you back to their dorm room is consent to intercourse versus the percentage of their female classmates who agree to that statement. Um, And, you know, even when they do understand consent, it turns out that that understanding can be sort of elastic. So a sociologist, Nicole Badera, um, talked to college guys and she asked them to define consent. And just like the guys I talked to, they all could. And then she had them describe their last encounter in a hookup and in a relationship. And it turned out that when their actions didn't fit their definitions, they expanded the definition rather than question their actions, even to the point where they would reframe behavior that met the standard of assault as consensual. And I think that in a way that is because of the way that we think about guys who assault, that anybody who engages in sexual misconduct is a monster. So if you engage in sexual misconduct, you must be a monster and nobody wants to believe that about themselves. So if good guys don't assault and you're a good guy, then whatever you did can't be assault, no matter you know what kind of gymnastics you have to go through internally to make that so. Um, but that can really blind us. And blind boys to the fact that a good guy can do a bad thing and get in the way of taking accountability uh, when they need to do so.
0: So then it strikes me as really important, Peggy, that we need to help boys understand, firstly, what consent is, and secondly, better understand the importance Mm -hmm. of consent in their relationships. Do you have any insights about, you know, how we might approach that with boys?
2: Yeah, I mean, and and I think that the other piece is that helping them understand, the, like I said, the way that socialization get, can get in the way so that they can, you know, one of the things that um, happens is that, you know, we sometimes we talk about miscommunication, but a lot of times that miscommunication is really about false assumptions um, that young men have uh, that allow them to essentially filter female behavior through the lens of their own desires, and we are, you know, talking mostly about heterosexual guys here, but certainly there is um, there are issues and importance of consent among um, same uh, uh, boys who have sex with boys too, and, I, and I'll talk about that in a second because I think it's a really great model. But um, but it's part of it is is helping boys realize that. You know, when, when you talk about that idea of sexual citizenship, um, which I know boys schools are doing right now, recognizing that that means um, having, you know, your own sexual self-determination, a sense of that, but also respecting and recognizing that self-determination in others. And too often um, what boys learn from the media and that goes unchallenged by the caring adults in their lives is that, you know, men are entitled to the bodies of others you know, particularly women. Um, and women kind of learned that they're not entitled to their own bodies. So there's this kind of symbiotic socialization that happens that we have to um, make visible in order to break down. So it's not just about talking about the um, definition of a consent per se, but also what positive sexuality is, what um, you know, what the messages of the media are, what gender socialization is. Because another thing that I found in talking to boys and in talking to, uh, particularly talking to boys, I I talk to boys in schools, um, I talk to parents, and that when I will walk into a room to talk to guys about these issues, they are in the most defensive postures. Because the discussions that they've been having with adults are all about basically how not to rape somebody. And they don't think they're going to do that. So they are sick of being bombarded with this idea that they're all potential predators. So if we only focus on that negative and on that, you know, potential danger and risk, we do them a disservice. We have to talk not only about that, but also about what positive, healthy, caring, reciprocal, um, you know, sexuality looks like, again, broadly defined. So that is... um, that is one of the really big things that we can't only focus on preventing the damage. We also have to talk about, you know, the do's, not, not just the don'ts. Um, one of the, one of the ways that, uh, things that really struck me in doing the research, um, was how differently, um, same sex couples or, or boys who had, um, sex with boys, uh, sexual encounters with boys would talk about all these issues. And they were, um, so much more advanced on the consent conversation, which was not to say that they didn't have issues with assault or miscommunication because they definitely do. But um, they had to learn how to have, they had a vocabulary and they had to learn how to discuss and negotiate sex because it wasn't always clear who was going to be doing what with whom and how. So, and one guy said to me, you know, I, I don't know why street guys are so resistant to these consent conversations, because when we talk about sex, it mean, I mean, about consent, it means we're going to have sex. You know, and that's great. Um, and and I talked about that with Dan Savage, who is a uh, um, has a podcast and is a sex columnist. And he said, yeah, you know, there's the four magic words he calls them that gay guys uh, ask at um, one another at the beginning of an encounter, which are what are you into? And I so loved that because it was such an open-ended idea and it ruled anything in, it ruled anything out. And I write about boys and sex, but the more I thought about it after, I realized, you know, Dan is gay, he has sex with men. If a heterosexual boy asked that question to a heterosexual girl, uh, she might say, I have no earthly idea, again, because of that symbiotic socialization. So it's getting to that... Point, but I, but I do think that what that question raises is the idea that, um, you know, we tend to think of consent and teach consent as a series of conversation, as a series of questions that heterosexual boys ask heterosexual girls to which they can say yes or no, and this, you know, this kind of blows that out of the water and makes it a bigger, more, you know, more real and more creative conversation. Really,
0: I'm so fascinated by. Or what you're sharing, uh, Peggy, you also write, uh, as I said earlier, about the impact of internet porn mm-hmm. in particular on boys. In In your interactions with, with boys, as you wrote Boys and Sex, what are some of the insights you gain from speaking to them about their engagement with porn?
2: Well, I always want to say um, before I launch into this part of a conversation that uh, you know, curiosity about sex is totally normal. Um, masturbation, you know, yay, crucial for boys, girls, anybody between beyond those designations. And, and, you know, porn is a big topic. We could talk about ethical porn, queer porn, feminist porn, whatever, but all that is beside the point because all of that is behind a paywall. And the thing that has changed for a new generation, you know, is yes, the internet and yes, the smartphone, but also that in 2007 Pornhub went online and dropped the paywall. So now anything you can imagine and really a whole lot of things, nobody wants to imagine um are, are are free, anonymous, and completely accessible to anybody, right, right at your fingertips. And what is modeled in that easily accessible porn is a distorted idea about sex. You know, it 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 shows sex again as something men do to rather than with women. It shows female pleasure as performance for male satisfaction, distorted bodies, um you know, even in the most straightforward clips, a lot of what's going on wouldn't feel very good to a lot of people, uh, especially to women. And and something for adults to understand is that um, research on same-sex uh, uh, teenage um, uh, parent pairs, so fathers and their own sons, mothers and their own daughters, found that boys, um, that the kids watched significant, like 50% or more, more porn than their same-sex parents. And that boys were three times more likely to have viewed the extreme content like rape or gangbangs or facial abuse than their dads. And actually girls were five times more likely than their mothers. So it's really important that we recognize that, um, that kids are looking at this stuff, that they are looking at it young. Um, they are looking at it for sure by the time. I mean, I never asked a boy whether they had watched porn, that would be ridiculous. I asked when they started and typically it was at puberty. They had learned masturbation in tandem with it. So the idea of using their imagination was sort of, you know, revolutionary. Uh, They would say like guys who use their imaginations were like legends in their communities, you know? Um, And so the question is then, how is it shaping sexual scripts and there's some evidence that it is, but you know, the truth is, is that kids are guinea pigs right now. Um, and in, in this, you know, in this, what's been called the great porn experiment. And I don't know that we can make it go away. I, you know, I wish we could there, The thing I think most poignant that a boy said to me at one point was that he felt that the rise of internet pornography had made it impossible for young people to explore sexuality without preconception. And that, you know, that that had just been been destroyed for them. And that, you know, that kind of broke my heart. But I would say, you know, I I know that most parents, most educators, most adults would rather poke yourself in the eye with a fork than talk to teenagers about pornography. But we really don't have the luxury of silence anymore. Um, We've got to talk to them about what's real and what's missing, because they're absorbing those images, you know, long before they even hold hands, long before they have a a first kiss. And they're bringing those expectations into the bedroom. And it really was, you know, I would say it was the thing that the boys most wanted to talk about with me, that they were most concerned about, they had the most questions about, and that had kind of messed with their heads.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I could speak to you about this all day, but uh, I know. We, need to, we need to close off. But before we close off, I'd really like to ask you what your advice might be for teachers and parents of boys, um, for the listeners of this podcast, as they consider talking to boys about these issues. You've just said, we don't have the right to not have these conversations. But as they're talking to their boys about masculinity, porn, sex, hookups, consent, um, what what would you say to parents and teachers of boys?
2: Well, first of all, you know, just to, to add on that idea of not being silent, if we are, you know, we think sometimes that we're protecting our children by not talking to them about these issues. Um, but if we don't talk to them, we're leaving to them to those media messages. We are leaving them, them to be raised by the media and we are not going to like the result of that. So I guess my biggest piece of advice and, you know, there's so many. There's so many things to say, and 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 I also just will, as a side note, encourage um, adults to listening to parents or educators uh, to go to my website, which is just my name, and there's a resources link there, um, and it has uh, ideas and resources for any aspect of these conversations that you might want to have. So if you're a middle school teacher or parent, and you're thinking, how do I talk about porn with my son um, or my daughter uh, or my or my my student? I've got that there. You know, if you're thinking, I've got a 16-year-old, I need to talk about condom, you know, whatever it is, it's there, and you can find some language for yourself. Um, However, all that said, my biggest piece of advice is just start somewhere. You know, just start. Even you know, it just starts. And with boys, particularly, if you can do it when you're in, when they're in, you're in motion with them. If you're walking, if you're throwing a ball, if you're doing yard work, if you're in the car, so that they can't escape and you don't have to make eye contact. You know, anything like that is super helpful. But you don't have to be perfect. You can acknowledge and own that it's awkward and you wish you'd had these conversations earlier. And nobody want you know that it's really hard, but you're going to have them. Um, it's just. You just, you know, you don't have to know all the questions. You don't have to know all the answers. You don't have to have a perfect relationship yourself. You just have to start the conversation somewhere and try to see it instead of as being, and and this is kind of, you know, a a lot, some places don't see it as excruciating. Some countries, you know, like Holland, Denmark, they don't see it as an excruciating conversation, a set of conversations. But for those of us who do, try to reframe it as a way to show up for boys and a way to help scaffold towards um, the adult relationships that you want to have with them and to model how to have difficult conversations. Because, you know, if we don't show them how, how how are they ever going to learn to have them themselves?
0: Peggy, I want to thank you for your time, for your expertise, for your insight, for the wonderful conversation we've had. Um, I know that people are going to, as I said in the beginning, relish listening to it and they're going to learn a lot. And um, I think it's just going to help all of us parents and teachers of boys in in our journey with boys to help them become, as you say in your book, better men. So thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thanks. It was really a pleasure.
0: For more on Peggy's conversations with boys and the insights she gained from these interactions, read Boys and Sex. It's available online and in bookstores around the world. Also, if you or your school are looking for a practical framework for teaching responsible sexual citizenship to boys from their early years through high school, our new online class, Responsible Sexual Citizenship in Today's World, unpacks Dr. Ada Sinecor's IBSC research for boys' schools. Moreover, IBSC member schools can access Dr. Sinecor's research in our IBSC member centre. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Until next time, keep safe and keep well.